Hey everyone, it's Owen. This episode is a replay of one of my favourite episodes from the first 30. It features Tony Hansen of EGP Capital. I also wanted to say thank you for making the Australian Investors Podcast series a great success. And to let you know that in November, the team and I here at RASC are planning to throw some big investor events in Melbourne and Sydney, and guests such as Tony will be making an appearance. We'll have an all-star investor lineup pitching their favourite investment ideas, and most importantly, a room full of passionate investors just like us. I encourage all listeners to come along, network, learn something, and even share some ideas. The easiest way to secure a seat is to head to the RASC Media or RASC Finance websites today. Alternatively, you can follow at RASC Australia on Twitter. I look forward to meeting you in person, and thanks again for tuning into the Australian Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode with Tony Hansen of EGP Capital. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RASC Group's Financial Services Guide on the RASC Finance website. Tony, thanks for joining me on the show. No it's, problem. Good to be here. Privileged to have you on the show. Um, I've been a big fan of EGP for a long time and been following from a distance, so it's great to finally meet you in person and, and hear some of your insights. The typical way we start with the show is to track your journey and how you came to be in the position that you're in and start the business that you started. Sure, it's pretty different to most people. I think. <laughs> it, it seems like it. So I'm, I'm very interested to get to get stuck into it. So you've graduated from high school in the, in the 90s, and according to what I've read online, you deferred study to start a construction business? Well, it was actually, um, it was a family construction business. So effectively what happened was my father had something of a midlife crisis and mm -hmm. ran the business into, um, basically ran the ship aground. And rather than watch him go bankrupt, I decided to um, tell him to step aside and being the cocky young 18-year-old um, that I was, that I, I decided that I could probably sal salvage it. And uh, it was all at once, probably one of the worst and best things that I ever did. The business was, which doesn't seem so significant now, but when you're 18, it was several hundred thousand dollars in, in debt and, wow. and really um, struggling and, you know, didn't have a lot of, a lot of pipe work pipeline. So it was a, it was a uh, nursery construction business, so building hot houses, greenhouses, um, shading systems, mm. benching systems, and, and, you know, anything and everything to go with the construction of a nursery. And so I ground away for about... Uh, or three or four years at that, or five years, I guess it might have been. Um, you know, gradually recovering the debt and earning earning very little, and uh, and then we sold out. Um, or, or basically, what happened was a business from Western Australia who was moving into the East Coast sort of came to work with me, and uh, that ended up being a, another another uh, valuable lesson in terms of. I set up a, an agreement with those guys, which was um, which was a very very low base salary, and, a, and a, which is how I almost always seem to set things up with a very very low base and a 
and a um, and a performance, and and then we had a disagreement about a, a bunch of the work that was brought in in the first year. There was a very large contract which I thought that I'd won. They claimed that they'd won, and I looked into after <clears throat> twelve months of working there. I, I learned a very valuable thing about reading and understanding a contract before you sign it, and I ended up walking away without really making very much out of that. So. Yeah, didn't really recover all of the debts, earned a very meagre salary along the way, uh, and then uh, didn't really make that much on, on the sale of the business. Sounds like a very humble beginning to business life and inheriting that, that debt from your parents. At, uh... Uh, yeah, well, it was a pretty a pretty um, humble beginning. That whole, m- most of, <clears throat> I always describe uh, most of the lessons I learned from my parents were um, counterpoint lessons, so lessons learning what not to do. Um, so my parents weren't very good at um, at saving or, or sort of investing or looking after um, after their financial um, well-being. And uh, so that became something that was important to me to never ever end up in that situation. So which is uh, which is a big part of the intellectual um, underpinnings of, of how I came to be, uh, I guess, so focused on setting myself up financially to make sure that I was never at risk like that. It's certainly a unique journey um, through business. Not many people jump in the deep end with both feet. Normally they, they test that or they have the, a bright idea. But um, let's let's jump forward a bit. So you've sold the business. Uh, you've had your study deferred for a, for a while now and you decided to go back and, and pursue a career in finance, presumably because you were enrolled in the... I was originally enrolled in, in a in a in a um, in, in a commerce degree, and I actually went back and started at University of New England doing a degree by um, distance education, mm-hmm. and I started initially as a as a economics degree, but about oh, maybe in second or third semester along, I sort of decided that the economics um, sort of narrows your field of options down a lot more, and I decided to switch to a commerce degree, which sort of widens out your your range of uh, potential outcomes from the education so I was in I was investing all the way along through there to be okay. to be fair my, my wife and I um, were primarily focused obviously at that stage in my 20s um, on, on paying down um, you know uh, we, we, had, we had a mortgage debt so almost all of our income went to, to raising children and paying down that paying down that debt but um, I was I was always interested in the markets um, I've always been interested in business obviously running a business from the time I was 18 and, and I ran businesses all through my teenage years as well we grew up on a farm so I'd set up you know if we were growing flowers I'd set up a stall on, on the road there was a road five kilometers um, down so I'd, I'd ride my bike down with um, with flowers and sell them on the roadside I always had a sort of a um, an entrepreneurial streak I guess in terms of um, business so I was always interested in business that's great what type of flowers uh, chrysanthemums for Mother's Day so but yeah we grew all sorts of stuff oh, um, baby's breath and uh, um, dahlias all, all sorts of different flowers along the way we also grew vegetables and and so on but never very successfully it wasn't a commercial <laughs> farm we, we I grew up on 30 acres and uh, we so it was more of a hobby farm than anything you and I share something in common growing up on a flower farm and going down a local street and selling something until I got in trouble with the council for not having a permit. <laughs> well, I never got in trouble with the council. So. <laughs> Perhaps I was doing too well. <laughs> so you studied the you studied the commerce degree. Were you were you influenced by any uh, books or were there any particular mentors that you clung to? At that stage, so at the stage where I was still studying, I really wasn't doing all that much investing. I, I, I you know, my my journey to in, to investing um, started probably in the early two thousand, so around that two thousand two thousand and one when I sold the 
business. And mm-hmm. so we started to do some modest investing. And I guess at that stage I started to read. You know, I came across the Buffett and Munger and, and uh, the Peter Lynch and all of that sort of stuff that people seem to traditionally find uh, early on when, when they um, invest. Um, but none of that had a really a really big impact at that stage because I just didn't have the capital to, to, to do very much um, at that stage. And I was just focused on... I was working three jobs while I was putting myself through university um, and didn't have a huge amount of spare time for, for reading. So I was working as a... Um, I was running a hotel, working as a bouncer and, and, um, and also doing scaffolding. So those three jobs sort of kept, kept, my, kept my days filled I can imagine. Mm. So um, you've graduated with the degree and then you've taken a job at UGL, is that correct? Yeah, so um, Andrew Phipps, who's currently the CFO of, um, of um, RCR Tomlinson, actually recruited oh. me to, to UGL back in the day in 2007. And uh, so I started working on a project down there. I worked a little bit in head office for a while, just sort of learning the ropes. And then I moved out to a project at North Head Sewerage Treatment Plant, a um, project called, it was referred to as the PAR project. It was, the, um, it was a renewal and rejuvenation of the, of the facility, basically. It was... Um, yeah. And what were you doing? I was r- running the um, project accounting. Okay, great. So you got a, you were able to apply probably some of the principles that you learned at, at school, presumably econometrics. Yeah, I mean all of all of the. Um, I mean what what I did in, in 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 the degree was was directly applicable to what I was doing. But um, more than anything, I think my own. Um, my own thrifty nature. I sort of did a little bit of the um, um, what you would call. In some of the acquisition and so on, did a lot of the buying and setting up of the early stage of the project. So I, I set up all of the site sheds and 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 we you know, did a lot of buying of forklifts and and some sort of major equipment in the, in the early part of that project and uh, that, that I quite enjoyed because it it, it, it enabled me to you know, negotiate and uh, you know to do deals and which is a part of what I like. But I also ran the obviously the P&L for the project and all of the back-end accounting for it as well. So I had a good, diverse um, range of experiences that were were quite good. Yeah, so this was all in the lead-up to um, what would ultimately become the GFC. How did you position... Did you... Were you investing in the share market at this time? And- I was, yeah. So we'd more or less paid our house off um, um, by 2007. So How old were you? Would have- um, well, I would have been 30 by, by then, so... To be fair, you know, my wife and I were never earning big money. I, the, that first job I took at UGL was for a forty-seven thousand um, dollars base salary. Um, I was pretty quickly earning, you know, a, a bit more than that when they figured out that I wasn't too bad at what I was doing. <laughs> but it was it was several years into into my career beyond, beyond that point before I ever earned a six-figure salary and actually had. So there was a lot of uh, pretty brutal scrimping and saving involved in how how I got to the point where I had. I guess the financial capability of investing in the market and having had the house paid off. So I, I used to do a lot of, you know, my wife gave me a lot of free reign with our finances to be fair, but I, I would do things like I would buy our cars at auction and, and um, sell them um, within sort of 18 months and usually for about the price that I'd paid. And what I was doing by doing that was actually removing depreciation from, from my um, from my lifestyle so you know depreciation is one of the things that really keeps middle class families being able to 
get ahead. You, know, you buy a thirty thousand dollar car and sell it five years later for twelve thousand dollars or something. That's that, that's a big slice out of your disposable income. So I was always looking for ways to minimise those types of harms. And so although we didn't ever have my wife and I say between the ages that I met her at twenty and, and say by thirty through that ten years, my total earnings and her total earnings would have been less than the than the median income of the average Australian family, but we still managed to save or or pay off a mortgage just by really being very, very disciplined. And uh, that focus on personal finance and and getting getting your your expenses as low as possible didn't have an impact on your overall happiness or...? Uh, I think that material goods people overrate for happiness. I still to this day, although I could afford much nicer things now, don't really spend all that much on material material goods. It's Mm. one of... um, Buffett sayings that I quite like about the chains of habit being too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. The mm. same um, things apply to good habits as bad habits. So if you can force yourself to be thrifty, and not to the point of being painful, I'm still generous with friends and, and you know, first to put my hand in my pocket when it's time to buy a shout at the pub and that sort of thing. But in the way I used to think about it through that period, I always thought about when, when I started investing more seriously, probably through 2006 and 2007 as we got to the end of having our house paid off, I started to think about each dollar of capital that I would spend um, as and you can do the um, the compounding yourself. So I was about 30 years old, but I'd think of that dollar as a thousand dollars that I wouldn't have when I was 80. So which is sort of a, a, a low teens compounding expectation with what I could do with the capital. So I'd sit there, and if I'm about to buy a cup of coffee for three dollars fifty, I think that's three thousand five hundred dollars I won't have when I'm um, 80 years of age. And is, is it worth it to me now? And it's a way of um, deciding whether the happiness that the that the expenditure is going to bring you is worth the sacrifice of what you won't have. Fantastic way to look at it. We all can't do the math in the head, but I think that's a that's um, we can remember that. Well, it's ten years later now, so it's not quite so expensive each thing. <laughs> so this the, the the GFC hits and things financial markets more or less move into a bit of a panic did you how did you position yourself and perhaps you can reflect on your time running a business and and you know your knowledge of accounting and maybe draw on those some of those behavioral biases and how you combated them sure so i think i've i, I think um contrarianism is is a is a natural instinct that as much as you might try to train it i think there's some people who are prone to running towards the fire or um or investing when financial markets are plummeting those people i don't think you can you might be able to get better at it but i don't you know it's something you've either got or you haven't to some extent and i consider my ability to stay calm in a situation of panic to be probably a couple of standard deviations better than average so um i should point out that we got very lucky through 2007 as well so we sold house in 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 newcastle which was more or less at the at the top of the um of the newcastle housing cycle and we bought into sydney in 2008 a few, a few months later, which was more or less at the bottom of the Sydney housing cycle. People don't think that the Sydney housing cycle ever had a flat period, but I actually paid the same price for the townhouse that I live in as the um, as the original owner bought it off the plan for in the year 2000. So um, I paid, um, I might have been two or $3,000 more. It was very close to the original price that the owner paid. And 
we, you know, we had some quite good fortune in terms of that, but we paid cash for that house and so that all of our disposable income through the rest of 2007 or 2008 got put into the put into the investing um, steadily. And then we had some more good fortune in, in terms of um, come the, the day that uh, Lehman Brothers went into bankruptcy, uh, I think it was in September 2008, I said to my wife, um, this is a, a one-off opportunity, a potentially a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I said, will you allow me to borrow money against the house? And so um, my wife allowed me to take a $300,000 line of credit against our home. That wouldn't have been easy. And the wonderful thing about it was, is that the banks um, took so long to process the uh, process the the application. I think it took probably upwards of six weeks, maybe eight weeks, and and the whole time the market was cratering, and and uh, so we, we had we had some considerable good fortune in liquidating all of our assets to pay cash for a house in early 2008 and then only having limited capital to use in the market through 2008, and then that that luck was compounded by borrowing. Um, and we so we probably got that money in either late October or early November, and uh, save for about a ten or fifteen thousand dollars of headroom, I finished deploying that capital in February on February 9th, two thousand and nine. So it was almost a month to the day before the market bottomed. Uh, so I put a fairly substantial, relative to our net worth at the time, amount of capital to work, and and we had a really really spectacular um, two thousand and nine uh, in terms of the the growth in the family net worth. Do you do you remember? Can you draw any specific examples? You don't have to name names, but can you what what you were seeing in terms of the opportunities that were in front of you? Yeah, I mean, you know, for the, for the, the I had probably by February two thousand and nine, I think I had probably thirty percent of our net worth in listed investment companies. So I haven't owned one almost for I would say probably the last seven years. So, but at that time, because one of the funny things that happens in uh, when financial markets dislocate like that is that people sell a- assets b- below what they're worth. And so the whole share market was quite cheap. You could have thrown a dart. This is what I was saying to um, people I was working with at that stage. You could almost throw a dart at, a, at the shares pages and the, and the chances of buying something that wouldn't have done quite well over the next three or four years was pretty low. But then you also had this opportunity to buy. And I was buying LICs, listed investment companies at prices in the I was paying high 60 cents in the dollar for so so and the good thing about doing that is you could look through their assets and you could make an assessment as to whether you like the portfolio and if you like the portfolio and you would have been happy to own those stocks you could then buy those stocks for 35 percent less than you could buy the equivalent portfolio at market so it was a really wonderful opportunity so that was that was where almost one third of our capital went and then we had some Holdings in um, uh, miners and so on, which we certainly wouldn't have. Well, we very rarely buy miners um, with EGP. We've only ever owned one or two. Yeah, we owned a few um, mining stocks. So I bought um, I bought MacArthur Coal at maybe two dollars forty a share, and I think it got bought out at seventeen dollars a share within about eighteen months. Um, but we were doing things like we were spending a lot of um, time buying discounted rights issues so we bought Wes Farmer's um, discounted rights issue and I bought Macquarie uh, Macquarie Bank so it was it was across the board it was everything from small caps there was the opportunity set obviously in two th- early 2009 was unlike anything I've ever seen this action you you took fortuitous luck and skill I suppose combination of the two um, two years later EGP is formed yeah so you know, a lot of my friends and family observed, um, I guess, my behaviour through that period, and, and and the fact that my wife and I went from being, um, you know, very very uh, regular middle class people to having actually a, 
a, a nest egg and, and it was all done in a relatively short period. And a lot of people said, how can I do that? And I spent time around that time, <clears throat> oh, through uh, probably through 2010, a lot of people started to ask me about you know, what they could do in terms of investing. And, um, you know, we're asking for share tips, which I've always been reluctant as a general rule to mm-hmm. give anyway, because I always say if you tell someone two stocks, there's no question they'll buy one of them. It'll be the one that does poorly out of the two. So, um, But I looked around at managed funds and I, I sort of saw an industry that didn't operate in the way that I thought that industry should operate. I thought it would be very easy to find a fund that had a very, very low base fee and, and the majority of the fund manager's earnings were, were delivered by um, our performance and there was nothing like that. And and uh, you know, I had an ambition to one day uh, run money myself and so I, I thought I might be able to use, we had 16 people that originally started. So what happened in 2011 was we created um, Eternal Growth Partners and there was $400,000 of my wife's money um, and and $80,000, which was $5,000 each from 16 investors. Mm. That was the, the initial capital. And then over the next um, probably two or three years, I slowly, because it was painful to pay all of that um, capital gains tax, but I slowly liquidated all of our outside holdings, my wife and mine, and migrated them into the fund and, and those original group of people added to their holdings as well. And you know, we basically, we, we grew very quickly. You know, we we're probably a million and a half within 12 months. And yeah, you know, we basically grew at about maybe 100% per annum, roughly, for the first six six years. Fantastic. You didn't set up this fund as what we would traditionally call a managed fund. Is that correct? No. So we used a um, you know one of one of the things that's difficult about um, about starting a small fund is is there's a huge amount of um, cost and compliance. So because it was all friends and family money and people who knew and trusted me, I set up a um, company structure, which is a very very low cost way to um, pull money. The only diff- the only downside really to it is is you don't get the capital gains tax discount for holdings longer than twelve months. So you just pay normal company tax rates, but then I just pass that through as franked mm-hmm. um, dividends anyway. So it's not a huge disadvantage, but basically set that up and under the um, small scale offerings rules of the section 708 of the corporations act legislation you can you can uh, take on up to 20 investors and up to two million dollars of retail money without issuing a prospectus so it's 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 a way to sort of pool capital at relatively low cost it costs 243 dollars a year i think to have an asset registered company fund and then I, i got externally audited which just just so that I had an arm's length taxation and and confirmation of what the asset values were, and so in total you can pull it off for less than two grand when you're um when you're running it very small. We were paying more like four thousand dollars for taxation and audit by the end when we were running fourteen or fifteen million. But even still, it was costing four and a half thousand dollars to run that fifteen million dollar fund, which is pretty cheap. It's incredible considering the costs of doing it. Otherwise, yeah, the costs are pretty brutal for you know more traditional structures. Mm. Um, I'm hoping now we can shift a little bit of focus and in, to the company that you've built. You mentioned briefly that you looked around the industry, uh, typical fee structures are such that you pay a base fee, say, between 1% and 2%, and there may be a performance fee for the manager if they do particularly well. You'd hope that's over some sort of benchmark, whether that's a fixed mm-hmm. 5 10%, whatever. One of the quotes that's on your website relates to um, architects in ancient Rome and how they built archways and the first person to stand beneath it was the engineer. 
to if it, right. if from, it, from Seth Clarman's margin of safety. So the, the engineer actually stood underneath it as they pulled the scaffold off. And that was uh, what Seth says is the um, his concern for the quality of the arch was intensely personal. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, and it's not, so, it's not so surprising that so many arches survive to this day. So and, and that's that's one of the other. So there there are probably three key things that that I explain to um, to investors if they're looking for a, a, a managed fund or an investor to invest their money. And the arch is important. So I think that um, the arch metaphor it describes the fact that the fund manager should have a substantial proportion of their own wealth inside the fund. My view is that at least 50% of um, a fund manager's net worth should be inside the fund, unless they're doing something really esoteric. You know, if someone was to set up a Bitcoin fund or something crazy like that, then that would be madness to have 50% <laughs> of your net worth in that. But for someone who's setting up a fund that's a broad-based fund that can that can do almost anything that that fund manager wants to do in terms of growing the fund, they should have substantially all of their um, investable assets in it, according to me. And that's purely to keep their interests to ensure that their interests are aligned. So one of the great risks I tell people is that if so, if I'm a fund manager and I've got a couple of million dollars of my own net worth, which I'm doing something with over on the side here, and, and I've got a fund, might be a couple of hundred million dollars worth of client assets, well, my, my interests in taking care of your assets may be outweighed by the fact that if I can hit a 50% gangbuster year this year and earn a big performance fee, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do very well out of that. But if I blow that fund up, that's okay because I've got my money set off over to the side here. So it provides investors with, a, with an important protection that you know that the fund manager isn't going to be swinging for the fences without taking some downside um, risk themselves. So. One thing that we're seeing at the moment is a, is a lot of pressure on fees, particularly as passive investing takes a hold. And we're seeing more flows into low fee index funds, the emergence of smart, smart beta, can you explain your fee structure and how, perhaps relative to other funds, be they active or, or passive, where you see the value proposition? So we, we don't charge a fee at all. Uh, so the, the fund will recover its operating costs, um, which now that we're in a unit trust, it's 21 basis points to our um, administrator. And then there's a few other costs, things like audit and um, some custody fees, which maybe amount to a few basis points more. But if we don't beat our, our benchmark, which is the ASX 200 total return index, then we don't earn a fee at all, which unfortunately happened last year for the first time mm. in seven years. And so we had to finally had to um, pay the price for structuring things that way. But according to me, that's the um, the most honest way for a fund manager to structure it. I mean, it doesn't have to be that benchmark. It could be whatever benchmark you set out in advance, but if you don't deliver to that, then you shouldn't earn, earn a fee. And one of the other, I said there are three protections that I'd look for in a fund manager. One, one of them is that the fund manager should have the financial wherewithal. They don't rely on the income out of the fund necessarily as, as their um, primary or is, you know, they don't require it necessarily to get by day to day um, is is pretty important because that will change the way that someone invests as well. People should be investing from a more relaxed position with a longer term view, I think. So given that the income that you generate and presumably the wage that you would draw from the business, does that necessitate holding a cash balance on the side? Um, so that line of credit that I that I drew um, that I created in two thousand and eight in the GFC is still available huh. to me. So okay. I've, I've kept it there. You just never know when the GFC might come along. And for the cost of, uh, I think it cost me three hundred and thirty dollars a year to have that facility right. there. And it's actually it's actually got a much um, larger um, because the value of our home is um, thanks to the Sydney property market is roughly twice what it was ten years ago. The value of that facility is mm. higher, and that sits there available for me. So I've got I've got access to. Um, 
to capital should I require it. And to be frank, I think that um, you know my wife also earns a pretty respectable income now, and and um, our children. Uh, finished costing money um, so our daughter's in, in, in university now but the boys are both in work and, and, and don't rely on us so much financially so we, we really have very very minimal financial needs which is a consequence of all of those years of thriftiness mm. is that our, our operating costs we own everything that we need to we don't have any finance on vehicles or anything like that so our, our running costs for our life are actually pretty pretty meagre. Yep sounds very simple but efficient. Um, let's shuffle, let's move across to your investment process and philosophy. I read in an interview on Guru Focus, I believe it was, you described your investment process and philosophy as glacial, and that stuck out to me. We'll dig into the specifics in just a moment, but perhaps you can provide a high-level view of what you're trying to achieve at AGP. So all, all we want to do is is to, then this sounds... Um, Sounds a little bit flippant, but we're just trying to grow our assets as 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 fast as we can, whilst taking on the least amount of risk possible. It's, mm. it's um, you know that should be basically every fund manager's aim. But you know, we hope in markets that over over the long run um, operators they have, we we would hope to earn a mid double digit return um, over time. I often say to um, to people when they're thinking about compounding. It's one of the things that they should teach more carefully in school is that if you can compound your money at 15% per annum, which it has to be said is a high rate of return, mm. but your money doubles every five years, quadruples in 10, grows 16-fold in 20 years, you can do pretty miraculous things if you can get a, um, you know, and even at 10% per annum, you're doubling roughly every seven and a bit years um, or, you know, quadrupling in 14 and, and roughly in 20 years, you're growing eightfold if you can get um, 10% per annum. So anything that's in the double digits is going to ensure that a relatively modest amount of money now becomes a, a very large amount of money. And so what we're trying to do in simple terms is to just find investments where we can take on relatively modest risk but but still earn a respectable um, rate of return, you know, which I would define as in normal markets, which is where the markets earn, say, between 5 and 8% annualized is a return in the double digits so just to, to do better than that um, reading through your content and i suppose this comes back to the comment about glacial but you've held positions for up to a decade is that correct our largest position in the fund is united overseas australia which i first bought in 2008 so yeah that's been a decade um and it's just as cheap today as it was when i mm. well it's probably not quite as cheap as it was when i bought it first in 2008 but it's still very cheap mm. um our average holding period is is we turn over through the first seven years we've operated the fund, um, and, and I didn't track my my turnover quite so closely when I was investing in my own account, but it probably would have been relatively similar. Although through the GFC there was probably a bit more movement. Um, yeah, we were selling things that were cheap to buy stuff that was cheaper. But basically, we've turned over about twelve and a half percent of our fund annually for the first seven years, um, and that that turnover is measured as total sales over the average size of the fund each year. So that 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 implies more like a an eight eight year. Mm turnover and that's broken up into two parts so we invest with a with a very high concentration in our best 10 or 15 ideas and with a, a longer tail that runs out and so our turnover in in the ideas outside of our top 10 would be much higher than it is inside of our top 10 um, but those top 10 ideas for the most part i think that you'd be surprised if in five years seven of those 10 we didn't still hold in the portfolio, um, you know, barring some unusual valuation. Some, you know, if, if, if the value of something gets well beyond what's fair value, we'll sell it, obviously. 
But if you own a good business that's performing well and doesn't and, and isn't grossly overvalued, then you know, generally it's better to hold those businesses. Yeah, I suppose that it comes back to that old saying that we're all taught when we're younger is buy low, sell high. What it seems you can do is, is buy low and allow that business to compound and not be in any particular rush to sell it. Well, that's what we try to do, obviously. It is it is uh, tricky and all of the, all of the usual pressures um, you know, the, 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 the intrinsic value of a business will rarely move by more than, say, a really good business could grow its intrinsic value at maybe 25% per annum if it's a real cracking business. You'll find that even the majority of good businesses will struggle to compound their intrinsic value at more than 10 or 15% per annum. But, but circula- circulating around that, the majority of stocks will have a swing of at least 40% um, from their high to their low in any 12-month period. So and if their value is only going up by 10 to 15%, then there's obviously an opportunity presented there. So that's not to say that we don't won't occasionally trim something that, uh, that we think has got a little bit ahead of itself and then buy it again when it gets lower. But you know, one obvious, uh, what would I say, one obvious um, exception to that is we've never ever sold a single share of United Overseas. I've only ever bought that stock, so I've only ever bought it when it gets it's cheaper. I've never sold it. So from the outside, it looks like you would have you would have a thick skin, and I think that's we've we've talked about that, and it's been borne out through your experience in the GFC. Fifty percent of your positions, or fifty percent of the fund, is invested in five investment ideas or thereabouts, and eighty percent of the top ten. Yeah. How do you find the the balance between having holding your conviction and being overconfident? I, I guess the conviction to do that just comes in believing. In yourself, you have to be you have to be confident. Investing is a is a quite an arrogant uh, profession in some senses. Is that you have to believe that you know more about a business than 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 the than the broader market does. Otherwise, you, you know, why would you be buying it? So anytime you buy something, there's there's an inherent arrogance in that that um, you have to be confident that you know better than the than the market does. So so you you need to be confident. You need to have thick skin, and you will uh, have usually in a in a concentrated uh, portfolio like we have, you'll have pretty big swings, and we we've been on the uh, on the receiving end of a, a very. It's actually been our worst period the last quarter um, in in the seven and a bit years that we've operated. Is that we were ahead of the market at the end of March, and we closed the year ten point six percent behind the market. So we declined by a few percent over the last quarter. The market exploded higher, and um, you have to if you're going to uh, take the concentrated positions that we do, you have to have the stomach to to um, withstand that and the confidence that, that what you're doing is right and that eventually you'll come back. And just to explain to listeners, um, this is a really good point to make, is that with the way the fund is set up, you only benefit financially if you reach a higher point than the market has. Is that correct? That's right. So the, our return has to be positive and, and outperforming the market. Otherwise, we don't earn anything. So effectively, you're paying because you've underperformed for this one period. There's so, so basically, on, on, on the on the first fifty million dollars that we manage, uh, we we earn twenty percent outperformance, and everything above fifty million, we earn fifteen percent out outperformance. So effectively, you could say it, you know we're running about fifty six million at the moment. So our our, our fees about nineteen percent or the, or thereabout of outperformance. We started uh, July ten point six percent behind. So you can effectively say that that first ten point six percent that I earn, uh, you're going to avoid two percent of fees. Hmm. 
It's incredible. And, and we're already, uh, well, so, so far in, in July, at least, we look like we're going to clip a couple of a couple of percent back. So, so the comeback has begun, hopefully. Like you said, intellectually, honestly, I don't know many fund managers that would put himself in a position like that. So. Yeah, well, I think um, I talked in my annual letter this year about Manish Parbrai, who, who um, uh, at the Daily Journal annual meeting, which uh, Charlie Munger chairs, Charlie called him out because in 2008 he runs a fund that's uh, modelled off Buffett's original partnerships, which is a zero uh, management fee, 6% hurdle, 25% of our performance of anything above that. He was negative, I think it might have been as much as 40% in 2008. And uh, it's taken him 10 years of, of earning back um, all of that 48% plus the 6% annual hurdle on top of wow. that before he's actually earned a fee. So it took 10 years for him to earn that back. Not many. Um, people will be willing to work 10 years for... There's not too many around. This is why I say one of the things that your fund managers should be is independently wealthy to the extent that, that they are not relying on the income of the fund. Otherwise, it can distort decision-making. Mm. Um, so, yeah, your fund managers should be independently wealthy, preferably. Mm. So, you have a reasonably compact team. How do you source new ideas and do you use perhaps filtering techniques and... How do you focus your time and energy on only the best small Australian companies? So we, by compact team, it really is just me. Obviously, um, fund host run all of the back end for my fund now. But as far as the investment decisions, I make all of those within the fund. Um, so I consider the fund to be sort of like a, a my own family office with just some other people's money attached to it. And so that's part of the reason I've got all of my investable wealth in it. Mm. But as to sourcing new ideas, so we've got about almost 300 people inside the fund now. And we have a lot of very smart investors inside the fund. I get a lot of ideas coming directly to me from my own investor group. Um, you know, I encourage communication it's one of the good things about being a small fund manager you know, people think that having oh, it's almost 300 investors um, the, the communicating um, with them would be difficult but um, you know I, I get a couple of emails a day it's not that hard to keep up with and for the small sacrifice of doing that every now and again I get an idea that's really useful um, I work in an office with a couple of other funds that run on a similar philosophy to me so we share ideas you know if we each go to a different meeting one day we come back and debrief on on, on the meeting each one went to and as far as filtering um, I, I do use some some filters so one of my the challenges I set myself is to um, try and look at the market in a different way every every week or two to try and come up with a new way of thinking about filtering that, that I haven't done before. So a recent one that I did was looking for um, businesses with very, very high depreciation charges, for example, relative to their market capitalization or relative to their earnings. And so that these businesses might be businesses that have very low or, or even negative um, statutory earnings, but because of high depreciation charges might actually be generating positive cash. So you just got to try and think about you know, and there's all of these, we, we talked offline about um, algorithmic trading and artificial um, intelligence and this sort of thing. When you've got everyone looking at things, uh, all of the same ideas, thinking about low price to earnings ratio or low EV to EBITDA ratios is only going to get you so far when there's a bunch of machines that have been trained to uh, find that stuff much better than you can. So you've got to try and think about something that a machine might not be thinking about or just a, a way of coming up with a ideas that very few other people are, are looking at so so do you think that when we, we hear a lot of the headlines as investors that value investing is dead or we, we hear value is dead growth is outperforming 
I mean, standard price to book, price to earnings, they're very easily to automate. Do you think there's still a place for value investing? Oh, I don't. I think that the way that people think about value investing is is sort of wrong. They think mechanically about low price to book ratios, low price to earnings ratios, but there's a bit more to it than that. And, and so value investing certainly has been changed by the big tech companies. You know, so companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon are earning very high returns on capital relative to their tangible assets, which is very different to the businesses that operated you know, 30, 40 years ago. Businesses like um, you know, manufacturers and so on, which had huge tangible capital committed. So you do have to be constantly changing as the market changes to th- how you think about what value is. But the idea of finding something, an investment that's capable of earning more cash flow over the next five or six years than its current market cap is and, and, and doesn't have a huge need for that cash and can return that cash to shareholders or alternatively reinvest that cash. That That is and will always exist. But certainly over the last 10 years, using those traditional price-to-book and price-to-earnings ratios, value investing has been trounced by growth investing because all of these tech companies, um, even on our own exchange, there are companies like Wise Tech Global and Afterpay and these sorts of things that are more based on on um, ideas than tangible assets. They're the ones that are really performed. Yeah, the goodwill associated with those brands is certainly run a long race. Um, when you find these opportunities and the company that you're willing to dig a little bit deeper into, do you, how do you go about valuing them? So we, this always sounds a little bit flippant as well when I say it, but in simple terms, what I'm looking for is I, I need to convince myself that before I put a dollar into a, into an idea that I can earn at least 20% annually on that dollar. And we, and to be fair, we haven't earned 20% annually, so I'm, not, I'm <laughs> not, not doing that great of a job. But the idea is that if, if you are persuaded that the midpoint of your valuation range earns you a 20% rate of return annually, and that, that can be depending on the investment, so I tend to use internal rate of return. So if I come across an idea that, that I thought I might only hold for six months, and, and as much as we do have that long that track record of long ownership, if I if I found a, a, one of one of our holdings at the moment is a, is in a property investment called um, APN Regional Property Fund, which is a property fund that's currently trading at about a dollar seventeen. It's got net tangible assets in the dollar thirty range and the potential for a slight upgrade. And there's a liquidation. Uh, or, or management of, of promised to liquidate by the 31st of December. And so our IRR on that, if, if it closes by December and sort of gets the price that we expect, will be in the 30 to 40% range. But, you know, we will have only held it for less than a year and it's a, it's a, it's a shorter term proposition. So when I'm buying something for the longer term, you know, in simple terms, if I'm looking to own something for at least five years, I want to be able to make 20% per annum for five years. And so the reason I picked that number is because I'm aiming for a sort of a mid-teens return in the fund over time. And, you know, targeting 20% allows me to make mistakes and still get 15. <laughs> um, and, and so in simple terms, we we try to buy when we think we've got more than 20% internal rate of return. We generally try to sell when that gets to a single digit. And so that, that allows us a swing range and allows us some room whereby we don't sort of chop and change our ideas too much. Do you think the time you spent studying econometrics and relatively speaking in infrastructure and projects, uh, obviously IRR is a very popular technique there. Do you think you leveraged some of that? I think that everything you do as a as a person will shape somehow how you behave as an investor so almost everything and certainly your employment is is, is a key part of, of what 
frames you. You know, by the time you've been in the workforce for ten or fifteen years, a lot of what you've experienced uh, in, in the workplace will, will, I guess, shape the way that you invest. And so, yeah, definitely, I think about you know because I've had such a broad cross section of um, experiences in a variety of businesses, it, it gives you a, just a slightly different angle to to think about a company from than someone who's perhaps worked in finance all their life and never actually been operational. Mm-hmm. It certainly gives me a, a slightly better understanding. But you know, with that said, we don't really own all that much in, in, in infrastructure and even in construction. We own a few construction businesses, but you know, it's not like I've really applied that advantage all that much. Um, there, there are a few times when, when my work history has probably helped us out. So I've got some um, background in the electricity industry, and we've had a couple of investments um, around that industry. And as, as you know, I've got background in construction as well. So occasionally it, it gives you an advantage, and you've got to use whatever advantages you can get. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to quickly jump back to the the business again, and you've now got, well, at June 30th, 2018, about $56 million in the fund. As any, I suppose, fund analyst might say, the bigger you get, perhaps uh, the smaller your alpha becomes, the harder it is to invest that money. And you've experienced uh, a, a relatively rapid increase in the amount of money that you're managing. Where do you see the opportunity for EGP for your business, say, in five years or 10 years from now? So we're running uh, 56 or just a, probably we've had a good month, maybe more like 57 or, or so million now. We intend to close the fund when we get to 100 million. And that's not because I think that 100 million is the extent of how, of how well I can run money and, and still earn out performance, but it gives me a long runway. So I, I sort of hope to run this business for the next 30 or 40 years, depending on health and you know, obviously how, how well the brain stays uh, working. But if and if you think about that rate of compounding that I that I talked about there, if you can compound that money over over twenty or thirty years at a double digit rate of return, it, it very quickly becomes a very very large amount of money. So if we were to compound it for thirty or forty years at fifteen percent per annum, it would become many many billions of dollars. So the reason why I've picked a hundred million to close the fund off is to ensure that it's at least 10 or 20 years away before I encounter an issue whereby the amount of money we manage is is impeding uh, our ability to earn returns. So by closing at 100, I think I, I leave myself at least a decade or two unless performance is really spectacular before um, size becomes uh, an issue. I read in your most recent annual letter, which is the Zero Fee Manifesto and the potential for EGP to launch more funds in the future. That's well, one of the reasons that I reopened one. We were originally intending to close the fund when it got to fifty million, and then to slowly grow it to a hundred only, only with the existing investors adding. But I've decided that we want to bring forward. We we got a um, a stable of potential zero fee fund managers that are very keen to go. But but I need to I need to get my business to the point where it's closed and where I can. Uh, I don't have to worry about raising money or dealing with new investors or any of that um, before we can start to really launch that next phase of the business. But you know, my hope is that, well, as I said in the annual letter, I hope to use the decade of the 2020s to to introduce lots of new zero-fee fund managers to, to market and to really bring this idea, make it more of an industry standard. I, I, I would like to be, this will sound arrogant or overly ambitious, but to be thought, thought of in 30 or 40 years' time in much the same way that Jack Bogle is thought of in the ETF mm. industry in that he took that, he, he's a big reason why costs, costs are still far too high in, in the fund management industry, but they're a lot lower as a consequence of the, um, of the exchange-traded fund and the indexing uh, revolution. That's another thing that you touched on in the annual letter, that there's a potentially insidious 
fallout from this dramatic shift we're seeing towards passive. Can you comment on what you wrote in the letter? Yeah, well, so w- what I indicated, I just there was a thought experiment in the le- in the letter about what happens once um, passive ownership gets to the point <clears throat> where it's as much as ninety percent or more of, of individual companies is that price discovery becomes very difficult in that situation. So the amount of um, active management that's there to enable price discovery becomes small, and and it'll end up causing harm to capitalism, which is a system that I that I deeply love. That's um, as I always say, has brought uh, through my lifetime, brought many billions of people out of poverty. But capitalism can be broken if capitalism properly and, and effectively allocated to the best and brightest ideas. And, and in, indexing, if we're not careful, uh, presents a real risk that capital gets allocated blindly, not to the best ideas, but just to the largest ideas. And you went another step and said that it could actually have an effect on the Australian economy. Or you put it in, in those terms. Well, I, I, I again used a, an experiment to sort of think about the size of the the size of the total amount of equity investment in Australia and the total amount of active management. And I also talked about when we say that eighty percent of uh, managed funds underperform after fees and costs, because fees and costs are fairly high. I suggest that if you can roughly halve the fees and costs, that that forty that eighty percent that underperform could potentially be lowered to forty, which would be good. But what that what they would also do if you can if you can remove the I guess the people who aren't capable of delivering a sufficient amount of alpha to cover their fees and costs, if you can take those people and and what what I said in the letter is that these are these are good and smart people, well educated. If you can take them and redirect their efforts to to more productive pursuits for the economy, then ultimately we all benefit. You know, these people could go back to being scientists and doctors and you know, working on building infrastructure and technology um, rather than just um, clipping fees and doing a second-rate job managing money. Indeed. Um, I think it would be great to, if people wanted to learn more about you to, to get for them to get, get onto your blog and, and read. Is there any other way that people can find you and... I mean, we're we're, we're, we're 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 a very small a small business. So um, yeah, go to the go to the website, the EGP Capital website, and uh, you, w- without too much trouble, you'll find probably my email address or my mobile phone number, and uh, yeah, give me a call, and I'm I'm happy to talk investing. I love it. Right. Okay. Final question: If you had a time machine and you could go back to the younger Tony, what's one thing that you would tell yourself? Um, I, I, I thought about this question a bit and it's a little bit hard to answer. I think that one of the things that I am I'm, uh, have been very fortunate about is that my particular, I guess my particular personality is very suited to the world that we live in, in terms of, uh, I just think, Everyone's everyone's got something that they're that they're good at, and so saving and making money was was probably always my thing. But you know, if I, I can't think of anything that I would really change about about um, what I've done or anything. You know, I, I often say this to um, to friends and family. If 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 you'd have asked me at twenty what sort of life I would have, I'm forty one now. What sort of life as a forty one year old man I would have? I couldn't have I couldn't have created a better life than the one I've got to be fair so there's there's literally nothing that I would that I would change I sort of feel like I went down a path that just really suited uh, my personality and who I am that's fantastic one thing I've taken away from this meeting is that if we can underspend from a very young age compound well everyone everyone needs to everyone needs to think about 
a mechanism that they can use that suits their own personality. So for me, because I understood um, compounding, as I said, as a 30-year-old man, I used to think of a dollar spent as a $1,000, I wouldn't have at 80, and I have some um, charitable goals that I want to achieve in life. So that, making sure that that money piled up at the, at the back end of my life was very important to me. But for different people, you need to think about your own way of how to do that. And everyone's got their own strengths and weaknesses. I've got a, a bunch of my um, cousins that are, that are builders, and I often say to them, they, they say, oh, you, you're just lucky to understand financial markets and it's easier for you. But I say, you've got advantages that I don't have. You know, you can you can buy and, and um, or you can own a house and you can do renovations and everyone's got skill sets that, are, that, are, that can help them to live more comfortably. And if, if you just think about the things you're good at and, and exploit them, then you'll probably find that you can you can do that yourself. Some great insights, Tony. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.